Again, good morning and welcome to everyone. It's so good to see all here at this Lord's Day morning worship service. As James said, and as you can see, we'll be continuing our study in the life of Christ. And I do think that this will be the final sermon, but those of you that are here most Sundays know that nothing's for sure when it comes to preaching through this series. And so we'll just see where we get, but the plan is to finish up. As I say finish up, obviously that doesn't mean that I or we as the teachers of this congregation are going to quit preaching about Jesus and the story of his life and his work. There's no way that we could ever stop doing that. That is our purpose and that's what we are here for is to preach the gospel of Jesus as we're going to see is the call and Jesus' wish and essentially marching orders to those who are his followers. And the truth is we could go on and we could go on and we could go on always talking about the work of the Lord and what He has done. And we'll never exhaust, we'll never completely fill everything that could be filled when it comes to understanding Jesus. In fact, even the Apostle John wrote towards the end of his book in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John could have written more. Mark and Matthew and Luke, Luke could have written more. Every single one of the twelve or twelve could have written uh, their own gospel as well as many of the other disciples that followed Jesus during His ministry. And even if they would have, they still wouldn't have been able to write everything that Jesus had done. But what has been written and what has been guided by the Holy Spirit to be recorded and preserved for us is more than enough. For us to know who Jesus is, for us to know that He is God's promised Messiah, to know that He is Savior, to know that He is the King of Kings. And we have more than enough to place our faith and our trust in Him and seek salvation in His name. And so we come towards the end of a study of the life of Christ and the Gospels. But as I hope to show this morning, as we come to an end of this story, and as this section of the Bible comes to an end, it really is not an end, but it opens the door to a wondrous beginning. So just as a reminder of what we've been going over the last several sermons, we've ta been talking about the resurrection. Of course, we dealt with Jesus' life, and we talked about His uh, betrayal and His crucifixion. But we've spent several lessons now on the resurrection appearances. We've seen how Jesus had appeared to Mary Magdalene first, and then the other women that were returning from the tomb. He appeared to the two disciples who were on their way back to Emmaus. And then when they realized who it was, they ran back to Jerusalem and they told the disciples who were gathered there. Apparently by that time, Jesus had also appeared to Peter, even though we're given no more details than the simple fact that he had appeared to Peter. And then while they were all together, this is all still the, the very first day of the resurrection, that first resurrection Sunday, Jesus appeared to the disciples in that upper room as they were gathered. Now on that Sunday, for some reason, Thomas was not with them. And so the next resurrection appearance we read about is a week later, again on a first day of the week, and Thomas is with them. And we discussed that a little bit. We read about an appearance by Jesus to some of the disciples who were fishing at the Sea of Galilee. So the first uh, several appearances take place in Jerusalem. The angels and Jesus told the disciples to go back to Galilee. That's where Jesus had done most of his work. That's what had been kind of the headquarters of Jesus' earthly ministry was Capernaum and the area of Galilee. It's where many of the disciples were from. And so after that first week or so, they return up to the area of Galilee. And while they're fishing on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus appears again. This involves, of course, the great conversation that Jesus had with Peter. There's a couple other appearances that we haven't talked about at length because there's not many details given. In fact, it's 1 Corinthians that lets us even know that these occurrences took place apparently during this time when Jesus was appearing after his death. He appeared to over 500 brethren, followers, disciples at one time. That provides crystal clear proof that the appearances of Jesus were not hallucinations because 500 people at one time don't hallucinate the same thing. I suppose 500 people could hallucinate at the same time. That would be incredibly rare. But if they did, they certainly wouldn't hallucinate and see the same thing. And so that helps us see, just again, the... Posit uh, a positive affirmation of the truth 
of the resurrection. And also we have recorded that Jesus appeared to James, and that is not the Apostle James, but that is his half-brother James, who had up until the resurrection apparently been somewhat of a skeptic, along with Jesus' other brothers, did not really believe in him. But after this appearance, after Jesus appears to James, he is going to become a stalwart Christian, and he will even become a pillar in the church. And there are probably many other appearances uh, that Jesus made, time that he spent with his disciples, especially uh, the closest of disciples. In fact, in Acts 1 verse 3, Luke says that Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so for 40 days following the resurrection, Jesus appeared from time to time. Now we know sometimes there were gaps for, for example, the first Sunday to the second Sunday, it doesn't appear that there were any other resurrection appearances. But Jesus appears from time to time to the disciples or groups of the disciples. And there are many ways that he proves this is real. And we may think that's strange, but if you, we've kind of talked about this in the past and we've seen some doubt. and We're going to see some doubt even in some of our studies this morning. But Jesus proves again and again and again that he is alive. This is not a mirage. This is not a trick. This is not a hallucination. This is not any other thing that can be, no, this is no other explanation other than the fact that Jesus has come back from the dead. And Jesus is also going to be showing them that this is all to fulfill prophecy. This is to fulfill the Old Testament. This is what God's plan has been all along. And so he appears to them for 40 days and he is preparing them. Because from the very beginning, when Jesus came and began his public ministry, try and cast your mind all the way back to the beginning, or close to the beginning of Matthew, and when Jesus came preaching, what did he preach? He came preaching a message of repentance about the kingdom of God. He and John the Baptist both were saying, the kingdom is at hand. And what is Jesus now spending most of his time as he's teaching the disciples in these final days before his ascension, what is he teaching them? He's teaching them about the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom is no longer just at hand. Within days, the kingdom is going to be established. And these disciples, the apostles are going to be the instrument that Jesus is going to use after empowering them with the Holy Spirit to go forth and begin the mission of spreading the kingdom to all nations. And that's going to be what the Great Commission that we're going to spend much of our time tonight or this morning discussing. And so as we see throughout all the resurrection appearances, there seems to be some very key concepts. And that is, as we've said, Jesus is alive, that he, this is the plan of God. He also is showing them and preparing them for the fact that he is leaving. He's going to ascend back to his father, but that does not mean he is abandoning them. And then the key thing, one of the key, real keys of all the resurrection appearances in Jesus' words and discussing the kingdom is others need to know. It is going to be the responsibility of the apostles and of all disciples, all followers of Jesus to go tell other people the good news. That is the gospel that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. That Jesus is the seed of woman that God promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15 who has crushed the head of the serpent. That Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. That through Abraham all the nations of the world could be blessed. That Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to establish someone from the line of David to sit upon the throne of David forever over an everlasting kingdom. It's time to tell others the good news that Jesus is the Lamb of God that has paid the price for man's sin so that man can be redeemed. Others must be told. And that really is the focus of the Great Commission. And by and large, what we're going to discuss this morning is that commission. It's found in some form in all of the Gospels. John's is very truncated, but we're going to look this morning at Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts of this great commission. These are really the final words that are recorded of Jesus before he ascends. Now, I think we all understand the importance of someone's final words. All of Jesus' words are important. He is the Word of God incarnate. But surely we want to pay attention to this final charge, this final marching order and command, this commission that Jesus gives to his apostles and also is given to us. So let's read first Matthew 28 verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. 
but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the disciples have been in Jerusalem during the Passover events. That's when Jesus was crucified. He's resurrected. They spend at least a week there. And then after that, they return back to their homes and their area, which Jesus had told them to do, to Galilee. We know of at least one appearance in Galilee when Jesus appeared by the Sea of Tiberias. But also it seems that there was a great commission that was given by Jesus while they were in Galilee. And that's what Matthew records here. Now, the first thing I want to bring out and kind of look at is this strange idea that even at this point, we're told that some doubted. Now, the disciples at this point have seen Jesus multiple times. They've been able to eat with him. They've been able to touch him. They've talked with him. They know, they have to know that Jesus is alive. And so we wonder how in the world can they still have doubt? But again, I think when we really put ourselves in their shoes, we may be able to understand that. Have we ever encountered a situation and we began to wonder, surely this is too good to be true? Or maybe as they realized the task that was going to be set before them, as perhaps it became more and more clear that Jesus was leaving and going to entrust them with spreading his kingdom, maybe they questioned their ability to do that. In fact, that word doubt is an interesting one. It's only used two times in all of the New Testament. Here, and the other place that this word doubt is found, is it is the word used to describe Peter's doubt when he began to sink while walking on the Sea of Galilee. And so this doubt is not the type of doubt that means someone doesn't believe at all. It's not the type of doubt that refers to someone's rebellion or hard-heartedness. To say that Peter had no faith would be wrong, he had enough faith to get out of the boat. He had enough faith to walk on water. He had enough faith to trust in Jesus. But he did allow the circumstances around him to hinder that faith. And so he had faith, but it wasn't quite sufficient for the task because doubt crept in. And the same is true of the disciples here. They believe Jesus. They believe in him. They believe he's alive. But there is always that possibility of nagging doubt. And that nagging doubt, while again not rebellion, and while maybe not completely overthrowing their faith, it's enough to hinder it. And that's part of why Jesus is spending these 40 days with them. That's part of why the Holy Spirit is going to come. They will be able to overcome this doubt. But this also adds a mark of authenticity to the Gospels. For example, think if you were Matthew and you were just making all of this up, would you include that little tidbit that everybody, would, that at least some, were suffering from doubt? Well, no, you wouldn't want to make them look weak. You'd want to make them look as strong and faithful as possible. And in that mark of reality and authenticity, I think we're able to see that in our own lives. Now, that's not an excuse for doubt. I'm not saying that doubt is okay and we should just be uh, okay with it. But the truth is we're all going to face struggles and we're going to face doubts from time to time. In fact, if our faith is never challenged... And if we never have to struggle and overcome some form of doubt, then I would question that faith. That's really not much faith if it's never challenged. And if it never faces any doubt that we have to endure through and overcome. Peter had to overcome doubts. Paul had to overcome fears. All of the apostles had to. But the key there is to overcome them. And Jesus gives them the power, and he, I believe, gives us the ability to overcome our doubts as well. We must realize that doubt is a hindrance, and we must overcome it. But then as we focus on the Great Commission, there is, I suppose, one word that becomes a key theme, and that is the word all. Notice that Jesus is again given all authority. The resurrection confirms Jesus' authority. He'd spoken about his authority throughout his ministry but the resurrection proves and confirms and affirms that authority. And Jesus doesn't just have a portion of authority. He doesn't just have some authority. Jesus has all authority. This is, after all, the Word of God. As Colossians says, it is by Him that all things have been made. He has 
all authority. Now, if Jesus has all authority, that means that he must be listened to. That means that it's not up to me. It's not up to you. It's not up to any board. It's not up to any group of men and women to decide how things ought to be done, what's moral, what's not moral, how to worship, how not to worship. Jesus has that authority. And we must listen to him. That means that Jesus is the only one with the authority to forgive sins. I don't say this to belittle. I don't say this to pick an argument with people of the world. But Muhammad does not have authority to forgive sins. Buddha has no authority to forgive sins. Confucius has no authority. No Catholic priest has such authority. No Jewish rabbi has such authority. No Church of Christ preacher has such authority. I don't have that authority. Jesus is the only one with the authority for he has been given all authority. And he has the authority and the power to forgive sin. That's a reminder to us that we must point others not to us, but to Jesus as King of Kings. And we must always bow before that authority. But also, because he has all authority, Jesus is to rule over all nations. The gospel is not for a select group. It's not for a socioeconomic class of uh, either rich or poor. It is not for one race. It is not for one gender. It is for all people. It is for all nations. And that shows us again how God is fulfilling His promise. Remember to Abraham, he didn't. Pro- he made some promises to Abraham's descendants, even some land promises, and that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. But God's ultimate promise to Abraham was not just to his physical lineage and descendants. God's promise to Abraham was that through Abraham's descendants, all the families and nations of the earth would be blessed. And so when Jesus begins to uh, prepare his disciples and when he leaves them with the final marching orders, he does not say, go to the Jews. He says, you go to all nations, to all people. And by the way, that comes down to us today as well. We are to care for the souls, not just of our immediate family, not just to those people that look like us or sound like us, not just to those who it's convenient to be around. We are to care for the souls of all people. And so we should be taking the gospel to all people. Jesus says that they are to, that we are to be taught all that he has commanded. Obedience to Jesus is not something that's partial. It's not like some philosophers like to do, something that we can say, well, I like what Jesus says about love and take that, but I don't really like what Jesus says about morality, and so I think that's outdated. If you want to follow Jesus, you follow all of his commands. I'm not saying that's easy. That's a lifelong process of growing in our trust and faithfulness to him. But it should always be our commitment and our desire to learn and know and obey all of the Lord's commands. Now, do we have to know all of the Lord's commands in order to be baptized? No. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But being converted to Christ means that we recognize His kingship and thus we are ready and willing to learn His commands. And every time we learn more about His commands, we're going to obey them. We must obey them all. And Jesus also promises that he will be with the disciples always or all the time. And so something else that I want to look at here, uh, this is very important. And this is a little bit of a linguistics lesson. Uh, and so some of you may really like that. Those of you that like grammar and all that. Some of you may really hate that stuff. But I hope this helps us understand this verse. In this passage where Jesus gives the great, dis- uh, the great commission, there is a verb. There's one primary verb. Now, if you look at that, there's a lot of verbs in that that phrase. But there's one primary verb, and then there are three what's called participles. And by the way, I have to be told all of this stuff, so I'm just reiterating to you what I've had to learn. But a participle is something that supports the verb. So you have a main action, and then you have other actions that are describing or supporting how that main action takes place. So in this passage, we have one main verb, one main action, and that is make disciples. This is the primary thrust of what Jesus is saying. His commission is you go out and you make disciples. That's what his followers are to be about. Now, are we to be about worshiping God? Absolutely. Are we to be about living morally faithful lives? Of course. But his chief call, 
is to go out and make disciples. A Christianity that never tries to influence others and never tries to bring other people to the cause of Christ is not a true Christianity. This is Jesus' call. You go out and you make disciples. Now, how do you make disciples? How were the apostles to go out and make disciples? Well, we have the supporting ideas. Go. First of all, if you want to make disciples, and if the apostles were going to make disciples, they had to go. Now, obviously, going doesn't automatically make disciples. That's what the rest is going to be about. But this is where it begins. Notice what Jesus did not tell the disciples to do. Jesus did not say, all right, now I want you to make disciples, and the way you make disciples is you go into Jerusalem, and when you go to other cities, you find the best intersection. You find the place that has the most foot traffic, and you hire the best contractor, and you build a really nice building. And you put a nice sign out front, and you make sure it's visible, and you make it to where all the amenities please people. And as you do that, then people will come to you, and you can make them disciples. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, it's your responsibility to go. Now, is it wrong to have a church building? I don't think so. And if we have a church building, is it nice to have it in a nice location that people see and we can invite people to? Sure. But I do fear sometimes that our commission, the way we view the commission, is let's build a church and get people to come. I don't know if you're a baseball fan or if you are a fan of movies. When I was a kid, one of my, I loved the movie Field of Dreams. And those of you that have watched that, there's a line that you're already thinking of uh, where uh, Kevin Costner who's told to build this dream so that some ghosts can come play baseball. I know it sounds weird if you've not seen it. But they say, if you build it, they will come. And that's what people have often turned evangelism into. If you build it, they will come. That's not the model. Jesus has built it and commands us to go. If we want to convert people, if we want to make disciples, we need to go. Now remember, Jesus said, you go and you make disciples of all nations. So that involves at least some people have to be willing to leave the comfort of home and go to other places, even foreign lands, sometimes even dangerous places, to take the gospel to those people. That means that for men to be able to do that, for people to be willing to do that, others have to be willing to help them and support them and send them, as Paul's going to talk about in Romans chapter 10. And that's important. And foreign work is important. But I also want us to realize that when it's talking about going to all nations, not everyone can go overseas or to foreign lands. I'm so thankful that this congregation wants to do that. We support certain men in overseas that are preachers overseas. And I think that's wonderful. You've been very gracious to send me and support me to go to some places overseas. And I hope we always have a desire and a willingness and an ability to do that. But that doesn't fulfill our obligation. Just because every once in a while we write a check. Or just because we send me or some other preacher someone. Because guess who else falls under the category of all nations? Not just people in Africa or the UK or other areas of the world. The people across Springer Road count as those of all nations. And the person that sits in the cubicle next to you or the office next to you. And the neighbor that's beside you. And every citizen of this city and this county and this country. They're members of all nations. And they need the gospel. And the best way to reach them is not for us to just sit here and wait, but for us to go. Now you can go to some people that I can't go to. And I may be able to go to some people that you can't go to. But the key is all of us need to be going. If we want to make disciples, we've got to get busy and we've got to go. But Jesus shows what it means as they go. They are to baptize. He says, you go and you baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is one of the reasons why this is so important. Because this gets twisted back. Just the other day, I was reading an article. And this was a denominational individual. And they pointed this out. They said, now this is a verb. And these are participles that explain how this verb takes place. And then they went and switched it immediately around. And they said, so what you do is you make disciples and then you baptize them. The article, interestingly, was about the importance of baptism. 
But that's not how this works. You see, baptizing is describing the process of making disciples. You don't make disciples and then baptize them. Now, is baptism all that is involved? No. Matthew is using general terms when he talks about baptizing and teaching. One author, the way I think puts it best, is he's talking about conversion and cultivation. And conversion culminates in baptism. When somebody hears and they believe, that is, they're ready to put their faith and trust in Jesus, and thus they're ready to repent and change their lives and begin living for Jesus. They confess Him as Lord. They're ready to recognize His Lordship. Then they begin by obeying Him. And the first step of obedience is to be baptized according to Jesus' command. And when someone is baptized, their sins are washed away. Ananias told that to Paul in Acts twenty-two sixteen, Their sins are remitted as Peter is going to preach in Acts two thirty-eight, And they become a disciple. And they're added to the Lord's church. Until that point, sins are not remitted. Until that point, they are not forgiven. And until that point, they are not a follower of Jesus. You cannot claim to follow Jesus because you believe in Him, even because you like Him and love Him, when you aren't willing to obey the very first command He gives you. That's not how you start off. Until we obey that command, we are not disciples. But we also need to make sure that in our vigor to defend baptism, because it's taught against so often, that we don't make it all that there is. Jesus isn't telling His disciples, you go out and you just grab people and you dunk them in a body of water and hooray, they're disciples. He doesn't even say you convince them about baptism and then you go try and convince some more people about baptism. He says you go and you baptize them, that is you convert them, and then what do you do? He says, and then you teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's exciting when we hear about baptisms. It's exciting to baptize people. But sometimes we're so excited and we think we're done. Sometimes we even hear about places in foreign lands where dozens, if not hundreds, of people were baptized. And we think that's wonderful. I'll tell you some of those stories. If you were to go back a year or two later, you wouldn't find very many of those people that have been baptized. I've heard more than a fair share of stories of people who were excited to be baptized and then they never darkened the door of a church the rest of their life. First of all, I don't think they were really converted. But maybe they were. And somebody fell down on the job and didn't complete Jesus' plan of teaching. You see, for someone to be baptized and become a disciple of Jesus, they don't have to know everything. They don't have to know their entire Bible. They don't have to be a scholar and an expert. They don't have to already know everything it means to be faithful to Him. What they do need to know is that they're a sinner and that they're lost and that it's only through Jesus that they can be saved. What they do have to know is that Jesus is Lord and they're going to obey Him whatever it is they learn about Him. And then they can become a disciple. And then they spend the rest of their life learning Jesus' commands. Now for them to do that, they have to put forth some effort, but they also need some help and they need some guidance. And as we grow as disciples and followers of Christ, and as we grow in our ability to follow Him and our knowledge of His Word and will, then it is incumbent upon us to teach others, to convert them, and also to help them grow in their own faith. You see, making disciples isn't just a one-time thing. Making a disciple is a lifelong process. I may have officially become a disciple when I obeyed the gospel and was baptized. But I am continuing to be and grow as a disciple from that point onwards. And so are you. And that's how we should treat everybody. Is to be growing in what it means to follow Jesus. And so Jesus gives this great commission. And then he gives a promise. He says, and behold I am with you always to the end of the age. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew focuses on Jesus' promised presence. Jesus is getting ready to leave. 
But that does not mean he's abandoning the apostles. He is not going to be with them as he had been the last three years, by their side, physically with them, but he will always be present. Now, you and I have never had the privilege of walking beside Jesus physically. We've never traveled somewhere with Jesus and been able to listen to him. We've not been able to sit down literally at the feet of Jesus. But that doesn't mean he's not there. And while we can't experience that presence, he is with us as much as he promised he would be to his apostles. He's with us in his word. Now we can still sit at the feet of Jesus, but how often do we take the opportunity to do so? We can still speak to him in prayer, but how often do we do so? Jesus' promised presence, I think, is still a promise for us. Now something interesting, this is just a little interesting tidbit for you. I love the way to look at how books in the Bible begin and end. And if you remember how Matthew began, he tells us the genealogy of Jesus. But after the genealogy, he tells us a story of the angel appearing to Joseph. And he mentions in that first chapter that this child of Mary is Emmanuel. That is God with us. And Matthew's very last line of his book is Jesus saying, I am with you always. It is the true Emmanuel. The all-present God with us always. That should be a warning. There's nothing that we can get away with, nothing we can do or say or think that is not seen by the all-present Lord. But it also means he is always there to comfort and to protect and to help for those that will seek it. Well, let's turn to Mark and look at his version of the Great Commission. In Mark 16, verses 15 through 18, it says that Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe me. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Now there's a few similarities between this and Matthew's account. There's the command to go. That seems to be the theme of Jesus' great commission. They are to go into all of the world, the whole of creation. And this is really emphasized here. Now in Matthew it says, go and make disciples by baptizing. Now what would make someone be baptized? Why would someone be baptized? Well we see it in Mark and also Luke. They're baptized in response to the proclamation of the gospel. They're baptized in response to preaching. Now that word proclaim means to uh, announce openly. It means to make known. This is how people hear the good news. As again Paul says in Romans chapter 10. And this is one of those things that's throughout the resurrection, we've talked about this. When Mary saw Jesus, her task was to go tell the others. When the women saw the risen Lord, they were told to go tell the others. When the disciples from Emmaus realized it was the Lord, they went and told others. When the disciples saw the Lord, they went and they told Thomas. You see a theme. Knowing that Jesus is risen and is thus the Messiah means that we need to go tell other people. And Jesus emphasizes it in these 40 days and in these appearances. He wants his disciples to tell others. I want to read a quote. This is from a man named Mark Moore. One of the main books I've used as I've studied through the life of Christ. He wrote a book called The Chronological Life of Christ. But he had this to say. And this isn't easy to read. Because it probably, I know it steps on my toes. And maybe it does yours. I don't know. But he says, there is no room for narcissistic Bible study. I don't know if I've ever put narcissistic and Bible study together. It's a weird phrase, but I think it's right. He says, there's no room for narcissistic Bible study in the kingdom of God. God has little use for academic religious research which spirals ever inward on itself, questioning and debating, refining and rethinking, but never communicating to a lost world. God is not glorified through endless Bible studies where believers pat themselves on the back for attending, discuss the latest theological trends, and leave quietly imagining that this exercise has accomplished the will of God. The Gospels press us to proclaim the good news globally. Now don't take what is said there the wrong way. That's not saying Bible study is bad or unimportant. You need to study the Bible on your own and I need to study the Bible on our own. And we would do well to study it more together. I think it's wonderful. I love getting together with people. I love it and studying the Bible. I like it when it's just a casual atmosphere and someone 
says something they've been reading or studying or asks a question and it just leads to casual Bible conversation. I like getting together with people and reading through a book or having an organized Bible study. I enjoy those things. And I think they're good because they help us learn. But we can get into a trap of thinking that's all it's about. Well, we need to grow in our knowledge. Sometimes we grow in our knowledge for growing in knowledge's sake. But the reason we grow in our knowledge is to empower us to then live it and to tell it. We could spend every night of the week getting together in small groups and talking about the Bible and learning about the Bible and increasing our knowledge. And I'll tell you what, we'd all probably feel pretty good about that. To be able to sit back and say, I went to a Bible study every day this week. And that'd be wonderful. Except for the fact that perhaps we would leave all those Bible studies and then never do anything about it. Never tell another person about the gospel. Never let our neighbor know about the good news of Jesus Christ. Never influence others. Never make disciples. That's what we need to be about. That's not easy. And I'll tell you, I'm the one that needs to hear this as much as anybody. That may sound strange since I'm a preacher, but it's easy to sit by and study and study and prepare lessons and studies for other people. But I need to be reminded that my job, not only as a preacher, but as a disciple, is to go out and tell others about the good news of Jesus. Now, there's this questionable verse, these strange verses in Mark chapter and, you know, part of me wanted to just kind of skip over these, but uh, no, that's not the way to do that. So, Jesus gives this promise that signs will accompany those who believe that they'll cast out demons, they'll speak in tongues, they'll pick up serpents, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. Now, we see tongues, and we see casting of demons in the miraculous age of the early years of the church, but this idea of handling or of being bitten by snakes and drinking poison is very strange. A couple things to note there. I just said these are signs that will accompany. Jesus does not say, anytime you're bitten by a snake, don't worry about it. Jesus did not say, if you want to drink some poison, feel free. As a disciple, you're immune to that. He says these are signs. Signs were for a specific time and for a specific purpose. And specifically in this passage, what Mark is highlighting is the protection that Jesus is going to offer. Now Jesus does not promise. Even to the original. Even to the first apostles. Protection all the time. But going into all the world. Is going to be a dangerous endeavor. And it won't do. For all of the apostles to die. The very first time. They step out and proclaim the gospel. So Jesus says. They will be protected. Now again that obviously didn't mean forever. Because all of them saved John. Ultimately died a martyr's death. But there would be protection. They didn't have to know how it would work. They didn't know how, how to know when it would be in place and when it might not be. They were just to go in faith and trust in the Lord. Now the other thing, we actually only see, so this snakes and poison thing, we don't see the poison at all in Scripture. We never see an example of that. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, but um, that we don't see an example. The snakes, we only see one time, and that's the Apostle Paul on the island of Malta, when there's a fire going, a viper comes out and bites him. And the islanders think Paul's about to die. And he just shakes it off and he lives. That's the only example of this in the New Testament. Now if that's the only example, then that should show us that what Jesus is not saying is if you want to prove your faith, pick up a deadly snake. And that will show everyone your faith. That's not what it's for. First of all, that's not a sign. Secondly, that's not protection for going into all the world. And thirdly, we don't see that at all in the scriptures. So this is simply about some protection for the apostles as they go into all the world. In fact, I think the easiest way is to look at it as a parallel of Matthew 28 verse 20. There Jesus said, I am with you always. Matthew highlights Jesus' presence Mark highlights the protection that comes in that presence. Now you and I today should not expect miraculous intervention as may have happened from time to time in the early years of the church as signs. But we can still trust in the Lord's protection eternally. As long as we are faithful to Him, as long as we abide in Him through obedience and faith, 
then we have the promise that there is nothing that man can do to us to destroy our salvation, to destroy our soul. And so we have the greatest promise of protection. But also let's look at Luke's conversion. And, and Luke kind of condenses the resurrection both in, the, in Luke and in the book of Acts. But he says, beginning in Luke 24, 44, Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the church or for the Christ to suffer and arise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. There are some similar things there again, going, preaching, all nations. But also notice that Luke reminds us that while Jesus was with them, part of what he did is he opened up their understanding by explaining the scriptures. I think it's worth noting that this is before they have been given the power and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not convinced that well, the way, Je uh, or really I think the way that Jesus opened the scriptures was not through supernatural, miraculous ways. He didn't just all of a sudden open their mind. He explained it to them. He taught them. He took them back to their Old Testaments. It wasn't Old Testament to them, but he took them back to the scriptures. And he said, you see this? And you've seen what's happened. That's what it means. He showed them how in the books of Moses, it pointed to him. He showed them how in the prophets, it pointed to him. He showed them how in the Psalms, it pointed to him. He went through the, now I don't know that he went verse by verse, but he essentially went and showed that the whole Old Testament was God's promise that was fulfilled in Jesus. Now that tells me that we should learn from the Old Testament. doesn't mean that we get our directions from the Old Testament, but the Old Testament teaches us about Jesus. It teaches us that as we read our Bibles, we should have a Christocentric view. That just simply means that our interpretation should revolve around Jesus. Everything is looking to the Lord and the promises of God that are fulfilled within Him. And Jesus is that fulfillment. And because He is that fulfillment, He is the King of kings that God has promised and thus has all authority as is recorded in Matthew. Now notice that the commission here, he's, Luke records that Jesus said that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. Now if you remember Matthew, Matthew said you go and you baptize and you teach those who have been baptized to then obey all commandments. So as we said, Matthew focuses in general terms on conversion and cultivation. Matt, Mark taught that one must believe and be baptized. That is, that one is to have faith and obedience. Luke focuses on repentance and remission of sins. So repentance and forgiveness. Now by the way, that remission of sins is in Acts 2.38. Peter's going to say, be repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And so in all three accounts of the Synoptic Gospels and their uh, telling of the Great Commission, they highlight some various aspects of what Jesus touched on, but baptism is present in some form in every one of them. Now that, again, does not mean that baptism is more important than repentance or more important than belief, but it does mean that it is necessary. It is not all there is to salvation, but it is clearly emphasized and commanded by the Lord. And as I said, if we can't accept that step of obedience, then we do not trust the Lord we are not ready to follow the Lord. He is not our king, and we are not his disciples, and we are not forgiven of our sins. But again, the other thing here is Jesus commands them to go to all nations. All of the synoptic gospels emphasize the global scope of the gospel. Yes, God truly does so love the world. Not just you, not just me, not just some people, but the world. And if God loves the world so much, we should take very seriously the fact that He has entrusted us and expects us to then take the message of that love to all of the world. And then we have the promise in Luke. I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. Again, Matthew, in Matthew, Jesus promises His presence. In Mark, He promises His protection. And in Luke, He promises power. Now, again, you and I should not expect miraculous power or the ability to perform miracles as the apostles were given. But I do believe that we can still trust in not only God's protection, 
But we have the power that we need. You and I have the fully revealed word of God. You realize that right now I am holding in my hand, and if you're holding a Bible, you're holding in your hand something that Peter never held, that John never actually held. The complete written word of God. And that's just as powerful. Their miracles didn't convert everybody. Their inspired preaching didn't convert everybody. But the message that they preached and confirmed with miracles should be the same message that you and I preach from the Word of God. And that's the power, the message, the gospel. We may say, well, we can't go into all nations like Peter did and Paul did and others did. Why not? We have the same message. We serve the same king. We have the same good news. And it's just as powerful for the saving of souls today. As it was then. The question really is. Are we willing to go. And preach it. Well. Now we come to the end. Luke records both. In Luke and in his. Uh, the opening of the book of Acts. The ascension. At some point Jesus and the disciples. Come back down to Judea. They've gone up to Galilee. They come back down because we're told this is as far as Bethany. In fact, Acts 1 verse 12 says that this occurred on the Mount of Olives. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? The Mount of Olives where the triumphal procession began. The Mount of Olives where Jesus was betrayed. Becomes the same location where Jesus leaves and departs his disciples to go back to the Father. And that's exactly what this is. Jesus' earthly work is finished. And it's time for him to go home. So Luke 24 verse 50. And he led them as far as Bethany. And lifting up his hands he blessed them. While he blessed them he parted from them. And was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Luke adds some further details in Acts chapter 1 verse 9. When he said these things as they were looking on. He was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went. Behold two men stood by them in white robes. And said men of Galilee. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven. Will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus has been with his disciples. This has been 40 days now. It's 10 days until Pentecost. And Jesus has led them back to Judea. Or to Judah. Judea. There in Bethany, they go to the Mount of Olives, a very common place that the disciples have spent with the Lord. And they have some questions, and he's teaching them about the kingdom. And as he ends, Luke says he raises his hands over them, and he pronounces a blessing. He blesses them. doesn't say specifically what that was. We don't need to know. And as he's talking, something amazing begins to happen. Now they know the Lord is miraculous. He can, he can walk on water. He can appear in rooms. He can resurrect from the dead. But he begins to, and this almost sounds silly, but he begins to float away. He begins to rise off the ground of the mountain and go higher and higher. And the clouds envelop him and the disciples in amazement are just standing there looking. That's exactly what we would have done. Until finally he's gone. And they can't see him anymore. And it doesn't really tell us how long they stood there. I don't know how long I would have stood there. You kind of get the impression if the angels would have interrupted, they may have just stood there staring. I mean, at what point do you stop? Jesus is just gone. But while they're standing there staring up into the sky, there's two men in white robes. That's angels. And... I don't, maybe I see humor where there isn't any, but the angelic appearances in the resurrection accounts, they, I just think they're interesting because they ask questions that are almost, you know, they just can't understand humans. Again, the, the women are at the tomb and they say, why are you at a tomb? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? This doesn't make any sense. And here they ask these men, these disciples who are staring, they they say, and you kind of wonder, one author I read put it this, you, know, you wonder how long they stood there watching these men of Galilee. I mean, what are these guys doing? And then finally they, they interrupt and say, hey, why are you looking into heaven? 
Why are you sitting here staring up into the sky? Well, that's a pretty obvious answer. Jesus just went up there. He just left. See, there's a message behind that. Why are you staring up into heaven? Hasn't Jesus told you to be doing something? It's time to get busy. There's work to do. And we have that same. We should always keep our eyes on heaven. But we must keep our eyes on heaven as we work and as we labor. But there's something else. There's a promise. The angels don't just leave it at that. They basically say, you don't need to be standing here on this mountain looking up into the sky where Jesus went. You need to be busy. But don't worry. Because he's coming back. And just as he ascended and left this earth, one day we'll look to the sky and he'll be coming back. But until then, be busy. Work for him. Serve him. Love him. Grow in him. And tell others. And with that, ends this chapter of redemptive history. With that ends the earthly work of the incarnate word of God. And the earthly life of Jesus of Nazareth. Again, much more could be said. The final verse in John's gospel says... There were also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. And so it ends where it ends. But as this chapter closes, the final chapter begins. The earthly work of the Lord is over, but the Lord is not done. He is going to send His Spirit, which is going to empower the apostles to go forth and proclaim the kingdom. The kingdom has been established. But now it's time for the kingdom to conquer. And grow and spread. And that chapter is ours. That's where you and I are today. Redemptive history has played out. The Lord has made good on his promises. The seed of woman has come to crush the head of the serpent. Jesus has been, become the Lamb of God to pay for our sins. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father to sit down on His throne and establish His kingdom. But it's up to us to continue to spread and grow that kingdom until the last promise is fulfilled because there is one that is still waiting to be fulfilled and that is the return of Jesus. But until then, there is work for us to do. And so as we end, we must ask the question, are you following Jesus? Have you obeyed His commands? Have you been baptized for the remission of your sins? If you haven't, you're not His disciple. But you can be today. And we hope that you'll do that. Or if you've obeyed the gospel, are you still following Him? Are you still serving Him? Are you still growing in Him? If not, change that. Repent of that and do what you need to do to get your life back on track. Basically, are you and I able to look to the sky? And along with John and his closing words of the book of Revelation, considering the promise of the angels, considering the promise of the Lord himself in Revelation that behold, I am coming quickly, can we look and say, Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Are you ready for that? If not, then now's the time to get ready and serve him. Become a disciple of Christ. That invitation is yours to accept while we stand and while we sing.